0: In today's podcast, I'm going to discuss clothing, specifically clothing for hunting throughout the rut. What makes this the most challenging is that, as opposed to likely any other time of the year that you have to hunt, you have the most possible range of weather, temperature, and precipitation shifts, and you're dealing with all day sits, which in my opinion plays a really big factor in how you dress, especially when it comes to staying warm and alert, much more so than the same temperature and weather conditions for say a three, four hour sit. Instead of laying out any one brand's layering system, I'm going to speak more generally in terms of how to best dress and what options you should have for the hurry up and wait mentality and then once laying down the foundation for what that system should ideally be able to do for various weather conditions, I can then point you in the right direction for a couple pieces a year that could fit the bill or mention where there might even be equivalents outside of the hunting space to look into. Before we get started, I have a quick message about the Spartan Forge app which you can get a 20% discount on by using the code DIY. The app allows you to do all of your standard mapping, navigation in the field, and waypoint management. You can currently choose from three different satellite views, topo, and in many areas, aerial imagery at multiple time points throughout history, view public and private lands, color code your permission status on those private lands, view all of your forecasted and historical weather info, add journaling entries for your hunts that automatically tag the weather conditions and wind for that time period, and view a deer movement prediction powered by machine learning based on collared deer studies across the country. I also have a walkthrough video posted on my YouTube channel that you can use to physically see the app in more detail. And with that, let's dive back into the episode. All right, so I'm going to break this up into categories. I'm going to talk about footwear as its own thing, and then I'm going to talk about base layers, layers that you would wear in over top of the base layers, and then clothing that you would pack in. I have adjusted my system over the years. I used to try and be as packing efficient as possible and try to dual purpose external layers that had windproofing and, and whatnot, and then kind of layer underneath them once I get onto a stand. And I've sort of adjusted that mentality a little bit just to make sure that once I'm actually in the tree, I have a system that is the most effective, easiest to draw my bow back, quietest, all that good stuff. Now I did talk about how there's a lot of ranging weather conditions, Obviously that's going to make a difference if you're in the South versus the Northeast versus the Midwest, uh, versus maybe some of the plain states. But even in the upper Midwest, I mean, our rut temperatures can vary wildly. Uh, A couple of years ago, when I shot my deer in Wisconsin, it was brushing right on like 70 degrees, like upper sixties on November 13th, I believe it was. And on the flip side, just a couple of years ago, we had temperatures that were sub zero in the first week of November. And that's obviously a a massive range, not only temperature wise and wind wise, but there's been times where it's rained. There's been times when it's sleeted. There's been times when it's snowed and you have to really be prepared for all those different weather conditions. And not only that, but much more so than any other time of the year, there's this all day mentality when hunting the rut. And when I'm trying to ask myself how much I should layer for any given day, I'll look at the weather conditions and try to offset them by... 10 or 15 degrees. If I think I'm going to be sitting in the tree all day. And that might mean that let's say the day starts off 30 degrees and it's going to warm up to, you know, 45, let's say, well, I might dress just like I would if the temperature is not going to get above, you know, low to mid thirties, because what you definitely find is that if you are sitting there and you're not moving, your metabolism is not very high. Uh, it's not like you're, exerting energy and it's not like you're moving your muscles around and getting the blood flowing, you're just sitting there and that wind, even if you got windproof layers, just kind of, you know, bounces off your face and your hands all day and it starts to wear on you. And, And maybe you've even felt like this before, where you feel like you should have been dressed warm enough for the weather conditions. And by let's say noon, one or two in the afternoon, when it's actually significantly warmer than it was at first light, you're still feeling much colder than you think you should be. Uh, you might be dressed really warm and you look at the temperature on your phone and it's like, man, it's 45 degrees. I should not be this cold. Well, over the course of however many hours you've been in the tree, by that point, your core body temperature is slowly reduced to the point where now you are just a slightly little bit hypothermic. And that's of course going to lead to you being generally less attentive, a little bit slower moving, um, a little bit less aware of your surroundings is what I've kind of noticed. And there are things that you can do to help out with that. Obviously a big one is if you start to, to really get cold, get down and, you know, do a little lap, uh, maybe check out and and spot check an area, uh, look for additional sign. And just that little bit of movement and getting the blood flowing, probably while wearing all of your layers, I mean, that can reset, um, your, your whole metabolism and, and really make it feel like you get back up to the tree and it's like hitting the reset button. Um, obviously, that's not ideal. So if you can offset your layering system to where you're accounting for all day's worth of exposure, then that's generally what I would recommend. Other things you can do is just make sure that you have, you know, food or snacks, some kind of hot beverage, if it's going to be really cold, that can make a big difference as well. Um, when you look at whether it's the backpacking community or, um, Western hunters that are, are going in and hunting for several days on end and they're sleeping out in the woods and oftentimes really cold environments, especially later in the fall. Um, you hear these guys talk quite often about making sure that they'll, you know, go into their sleeping bag warm. They don't go into their sleeping bag cold. They might add a, you know, additional puffy in their sleeping bag. They might do some, you know, ups or air squats, um, just to kind of get that metabolism warmed up and put a warm body into the sleeping bag and also eat hot food right before they, they go in. And all those little things can make a huge difference in terms of how effective that insulation of the sleeping bag is able to to maintain your body throughout the night. And it's the same principle here. If you're, um, kind of not taking care of your body and you're a little bit dehydrated, you haven't really been eating much. Maybe you just eat like once a day when you get home, um, or get back to the hotel or whatever eat that fast food and then you go to sleep and then you wake up the next morning and do the whole thing again. Don't bring anything out into the woods with you. You're not setting yourself up for success. And if you can bring in a little bit of water, make sure you're hydrated, uh, bring in some kind of, you know, hot food option. If you have the ability, uh, or even kind of like a warm liquid, if it's going to be really cold and you plan on sitting there all day and not having to get out of the tree again, the little things can definitely add up there. So back on track, uh, what I'll lay out now for footwear is a system that has worked out really well for me. And it does give you options too. Now, number one is some kind of a foot antiperspirant. The thing is, if your feet get wet, it's really hard to keep them warm versus if your feet are dry. So a really good first step is putting that antiperspirant on your feet. I'm not talking about the uh, you know normal stuff that you would put under your underarmers. I'm talking about actual designed four feet antiperspirant. There's a couple different, uh, kinds. All the stuff I've tried has been from Amazon and generally it all works out pretty well. There's one that's, uh, comes in kind of a roller. That's an aluminum based one. Uh, there's another one I'd try. That's more of a, a lotion based antiperspirant that you can rub on your feet and just let them dry before you put your socks on. Both seem to have worked out pretty well and both make a legitimate difference in how much moisture my socks get when I'm just walking in and out of the woods. So definitely recommend that as a a first option. The next thing I'll do is instead of just putting on one layer of socks, I'll usually use two layers of socks total. The first one will be just a really thin liner sock, usually synthetic like a polyester or a polypropylene. And the whole intent and purpose of that sock is to really wick any moisture that your feet do create quickly to the next layer um, in your sock system. So that next layer for me would typically be a midweight merino base sock or a midweight alpaca base sock, and the thought is here. I usually don't go with a heavyweight sock because then you end up having to upsize your boots a little bit. You don't get as good of a, uh, a sizing. It's harder to move around, and I feel a little bit less nimble. I feel like when I'm moving through the woods, I'm clumsier and more noisy, and uh, obviously the the size can take up more space on your platform, uh, so it's just a little bit harder to to deal with. And then for the actual boots themselves, there's a couple of options that I've done and have really been okay with. One is just the lightweight option, right? If you're wearing lightweight hiking boots, maybe the same ones you wear during early season. Um, I've got some Loa boots that are uninsulated and I use those scouting. I use them for turkey hunting. I use them for early season deer hunting, especially if I'm in hills because I get, you know, they're nice uh, taller than ankle high boots and I can lace them up nice and tight. So there's a great, uh, foot feel there. So definitely does a great job of terrain. I can wear a boot like that and really the only thing that I need to add additionally would then be some kind of a, uh, boot blanket over the top. Like an Arctic shield boot cover would probably be the one that I would recommend just because of how thin it is. And it's remarkable how much of a a good job it does just based on that, uh, thinness of the material itself. Now you can also buffer that heat by adding in some, uh, some chemical warmers, but it seems like for me, if I'm wearing just an uninsulated hiking boot with the same sock system that I just mentioned, and I have the Arctic shield boot covers over the top, that usually get me down to like, you know, twenties, probably even teens. If it's an all day sit, then I can usually start feeling them get cool. Uh, if it's teens or, or 20 degree temperatures. And that's about the time when I would start needing to add in, in uh chemical warmers and You can do the same thing with uninsulated rubber boots too. The thing with rubber boots, sometimes they're going to be needed just from a water perspective. If you're going to be going through, you know, some kind of an ankle deep uh, or thereabouts water to get to your tree, but you're going to have to pay a little bit closer attention to make sure that your feet stay dry. And the next boot that I would uh, talk about is going to be also one that requires you to pay a little bit more attention to keep your feet dry. And that's just a little bit heavier insulated boot. I had, uh, worn some, well, they're not rubber boots, they're EVA boots. It's a fishing company called, uh, Acara. And the Acara Nordman extreme boot is one that I had tried out last year. And you have to be careful, if it does get wet, then it makes a little bit of a squeak and you rub the two boots together. But from a construction standpoint, imagine a normal knee-high rubber boot, but with a removable felt liner. That adds quite a bit of extra warmth and they're extremely lightweight. They're probably, you know, a third or half the weight of normal rubber boots, just like those tingly ultralight EVA boots are compared to a normal rubber boot. Now, again, because they're larger in physical size, they're a little bit clumsier. So I don't like walking into the woods as much with them, but on flat ground, it's not the biggest deal in the world. And they do keep my feet warmer than uninsulated boots would. I just have to watch the moisture a little bit more. And one trick that you can do if you are wearing heavier insulated boots is you can just own up to the fact that your feet might sweat walking in and create some kind of a moisture barrier that allows you to trap all of the moisture and keep it away from the actual boot itself. So in the um, example I gave with the the heavier lined boot with that removable felt liner, you could wear just a, a liner sock and you know, there's an old bread bag trick that people used to do in the the bread bag would serve as a moisture barrier. There's also companies that make, um, you know, moisture barrier type socks and effectively all you would do is, you know, just put that bread bag or whatever over your liner sock and then just step into your boot. And then when you walk in, if your feet sweat, all of that moisture is going to be trapped inside the, the bread bag or the moisture barrier. And then when you get to your tree, you would remove that, take that off your foot, and then you could replace with dry socks And then you put your dry socks and your feet into those boots and your boots are just absolutely perfectly dry. And you're going to stay much warmer than if you would have walked into the woods um, and just let your socks get sweaty. And of course that sweat would then transfer into the interior lining and insulation of your boots. So those are all things you can definitely do to help make sure your feet stay dry and subsequently stay warm. I have also played around a little bit with the heated socks. I haven't tried out the heated insoles primarily because reviews have always just been really, really hit and miss, but in terms of the heated socks, they're so promising because they offer you an opportunity to add that additional heat. You can have the battery, you know, way up by your knee. If you have really long uh, heated socks and it allows you to walk in with a lighter insulation package and then add that exterior heat, much like the same philosophy with all the other heated garments. The downsides I found with them, number one, if you're walking through any kind of water, I've had uh, instances where I've gone over the top of my boots and flooded my boots with cold water. And of course, with the electronics and the heated socks, uh, that doesn't work out so well. I had a a pair that uh, got ruined because of that. And then the other thing that I found that's been really more of an annoyance than anything has just been the tendency of the weight of the battery itself, which is usually up at the top of the sock to pull the whole sock down your calf and then the battery ends up down by your ankles. Anyway, and it ends up being, um, fairly uncomfortable. That's been the the biggest thing. That's just been a, a struggle with those. Now, if you have boots that are lace up boots, then they're, they're, it's not going to be as big of an issue as it would be with say like a rubber boot where the battery can just, you know, free fall all the way down to your ankle. Um, you know, you could probably go down and, and, uh, you know, try taping around the socks underneath the battery just to kind of try and keep them up in your calf or whatever. Uh, the little bit of extra tension there, but uh, I've tended to find that it's just one more again thing to plug in. And generally speaking, the battery-free electronics-free option has been doing pretty all right in terms of keeping my feet warm. Now, we'll branch off of footwear and talk about the rest of your body and kind of go with base layers, then what I would wear in over the top of the base layers, and then. What I would pack in based on what the weather looks like. And so with base layers, there's always the discussion of whether or not it's better to go with merino wool or some type of a synthetic. And it definitely can depend on the, the brand and the, the makeup of those layers. And also the weight of the fabric of themselves. If you have a lightweight synthetic versus a heavyweight synthetic, that can make a huge difference. Uh, same thing with wool. You know, I think back to when I was younger, my dad and I had these really heavy synthetic base layers and the sweat would just cling to them uh, and it was very uncomfortable to, you know, get any kind of moisture in them and then just kind of like lean back against a tree. Um, they just, it wasn't a pleasant experience to have those base layers. They didn't transfer the moisture nearly as effectively as I always thought that they should have. Now technology's come a long ways and generally the trade-offs between wool and synthetic are kind of as follows. Um, wool is going to be a little bit more naturally antimicrobial meaning you can wear it for multiple days without, uh, getting the odor build up. However, a lot of synthetics are pretty good if they've been treated on the, uh, the raw material side of things and most, at least hunting specific, uh, synthetic base layers have been treated. And so I can find that even like if I'm Turkey hunting in the spring and it's late May and I'm running and gunning up in Hills and just sweating my butt off every day, I can go three, four, five days in a row, just living in a synthetic base layer that's been, uh, treated for uh, microbials. And it's not terrible. It's not as good as wool would be, but it's, it's not bad and certainly more comfortable, um, running a gunning at some of that hot weather. So with synthetics, the big advantage, number one is going to be durability and longevity, but number two is also just going to be the uh, speed, especially with a really thin one with how quickly you're able to transport moisture to the next layer in the system. Ultimately, if you talk to people who work at companies that offer both, and you look at them from just a a textile science standpoint, there's pros and cons to either one of them. Um, Wool, in my experience, tends to be a little bit more comfortable if it is moist compared to synthetic, but then again, synthetic dries a lot faster. Um, If you get a wool garment sweated up, it's going to take longer to, um, to wick away and dry out. So, it really comes down to personal preference as much as anything. I tend to find that if I have a really thin synthetic and then over top of that either a midweight or heavyweight synthetic base layer or midweight or heavyweight wool base layer, that one two combination has for me been great. So, I would definitely recommend that the synthetic thin base layer gets that moisture off your skin and that keeps you next to skin comfort and then you're allowing that midweight base layer to to take its time a little bit more to get that moisture to continue to transport off of your body. And of course, if you don't sweat at all, then you're just getting a little bit of extra warmth and added comfort underneath your mid layers. Now with base layers, you can get heated ones, both on the the ultralight side and on the more mid or heavyweight side of things. The only big example that I know of off the top of my head from a thin base layer standpoint is the NUMA heated base layers. I have the pants and the vest and I do tend to like them. Uh, the biggest downsides from my perspective is that you can't run a huge battery with them. Uh, they come with a little proprietary batteries that fit into the pockets on the uh, the vest and the pants. Whereas if you were to go with like, you know, an Amazon heated garment um, or even like, I think Scentlock makes one where you can just have a five volt uh, plug in that you can put any battery bank on those, you can get a lot more longevity based off of a single battery. And if you are going to be sitting out there all day, then those little tiny battery packs are not going to cut it for all day use. And you have to swap them out, which can be very inconvenient if they're buried under layers and layers of clothing. So I tend to like the, uh, Numa vest more than I like the pants. Just number one, I guess, from the ease of, of battery swapping. Um, once you have them on the, the lower layers, it's really tough to think about changing. And with the upper layer, uh, I tend to find that that's a really versatile heated vest that I can wear, you know, in moderate temperatures or in cold temperatures, I can turn it on if I needed to. And if I don't need to turn it on, then it is just, just a nice thin next to skin base layer. A lot of times I'd wear that new, heated vest and use that as my next skin base layer with like a midweight Merino wool over the top. Now, what I've kind of started to lean more towards on the lower body side of things is just a nice thin silk weight, synthetic next to skin base layer. And then over top of that, a fleece mid-weight, we call it a mid-weight. It's kind of like a lighter mid-weight base layer that's heated. And that one I can run like a 10,000 milliamp hour battery pack in it. And fleece is another one of those options where it's kind of borderline between like, is it a heavy base layer or is it a um, you know, a lighter weight mid layer type of thing. Uh, but if you have a fleece or other polyester garment that is thin enough and breathable enough and stretchable enough, you could certainly use it as a layer that you're uh, wearing in. If you have too heavy weight of a fleece, then you're going to overheat in it. It's not going to breathe quite as well as most of your other uh, base layer materials. And then the heated base layer pants that I had bought off of Amazon, in case anybody's interested in looking at them, the brand is called Venestas. Uh, V-E-N-U-S-T-A-S. They had both a a shirt option and pants. I just got the pants. um, And I wouldn't consider them fully vetted at this point. They seem to work well on my initial testing, but I still have to really put them through the paces this year. But the, it comes with a five volt battery pack that was 10,000 milliamp hours. And, you know, again, thought process being silk weight next to skin, then these, then uh, walking in pants over the top. And for the pants that I would actually wear as my exteriors, while I'm walking in what I would typically almost a hundred percent of the time use would be some kind of a soft shell pant, uh, preferably with hip vents so that even if I'm wearing like knee high rubber boots, I could still vent them. They don't necessarily have to be windproof. You know, like an example of the windproof versus non for something like this would be like the Phantom 1.0 versus the Phantom 2.0 pants from fleet. Um, Those pants, the original versions, the 1.0s were not fully windproof, but they were highly wind resistant and there was no membrane uh, to make them be fully windproof, but they were extremely breathable, nice and quiet and very tough. The 2.0s, they added that windproof laminate inside them and they're fully windproof, Uh, but they're not quite as quiet as the 1.0s and they uh, don't have quite the same amount of breathability. So if I were to to go really hard in both of those and was to really push it, um, they both have hit vents. So that helps let, you know, free a lot of that extra heat that you'd be building up. But if I knew I was going to be doing a high exertion access, I would probably lean towards the 1.0s as opposed to the 2.0s. And that's basically how I try to guide somebody in making that decision of should you have windproof or non windproof, um, soft shell pants. If you're just gonna be using them to walk in and you're planning on using bibs anyway, you probably don't need the um, extra windproofness. And I would probably say it's it's gonna be overkill. You'd be more likely to overheat with that uh, mid layer having the windproofing as well. Uh, just my two cents on it. Now, on the flip side, if you're planning on zipping up the vents and wearing those pants as your exterior garment in the tree, then that's a different discussion and that you probably would want to uh, opt for the windproof versions. Now, when it comes to what I'm going to wear on my exterior, when I'm walking in up top, that's going to depend quite a bit on how much exertion also I'm going to use in my access. A lot of times if it's, you know, kind of middle of the road temperatures, let's say it's warm, let's say it's early rut or it's a warm front. And, uh, in those cases I will wear oftentimes just the base layers and maybe a vest. And that's pretty much it because I, I don't want to overheat. Uh, you know, I'm going to pack in a jacket And I want to kind of try to maintain more or less an ability to not sweat, but at the same time, not like freeze, um, that comfortable cool comes up and let's be honest, it's really hard to stay comfortably cool perfectly throughout the entire duration of an access, especially if it's a long access route, you're going to have some amount of variation, usually start off cool and kind of warm up and then maybe get to a higher exertion area and then you have to maybe slow down, take a little bit of a break, cool off a little bit, or maybe it just means taking off the vest um, and continue to push for a little bit. I'll do that quite a bit too. If uh, it's really cold, especially I might overdress initially, knowing that I'm going to take one of those um, exterior layers and plan on taking it off, you know, maybe midway through my access. But I would usually choose a wind-resistant fleece, or a wind-resistant softshell vest. Those are kind of be my go-tos from an exterior standpoint while walking in. Another option could be like a full-on jacket softshell, but I don't seem to find myself doing that quite as much. Usually it seems like the vest is enough to keep the harsh wind from blowing through the base layers and super chilling me, uh, but at the same point in time, it allows me to vent quite a bit and not overheat because of the, the lack of the material on the sleeves. And the way that I layer these exterior garments that I'm wearing on the access are going to become mid layers once I'm in the tree. So that's something to keep in mind too. And from that standpoint, what I did a lot last season will probably continue to do is had a fleece mid-weight heated vest. One of those ones again, off of Amazon that uh, you could plug a five volt battery bank into. And that could have almost like 30,000 million milliamp uh, power banks. You don't get quite the same amount of warmth next to skin as you would get off of the Numa. Base layer, but you get the longevity. You get the all day. And if you have two of those 30,000 milliamp battery packs, that'll easily get you through dark to dark. And then you can just swap through, you know, charge one one day, use the other one, and then just keep swapping them out. And you'll be able to get uh, all day warmth there. Now, the fleece on the heated vest is, again, breathable enough to where you're not super overheating on the way in, but you're still able to vent a little bit. And then It becomes a nice, thin, quiet mid layer underneath your jacket that adds that additional heat for hats and gloves. I'll kind of just really vary that based on the weather conditions, how cold and windy it is. If I'm accessing with a boat or I'm accessing with like a bicycle, let's say if it's like a logging road based access or water-based access, then I'll usually have a separate pair of like really heavy duty gloves just because I'm not going to be doing high exertion and I could be having high wind speeds against my hands. And that can just be brutal. So if I have a bike or if I'm using a boat, I'll have like those big heavyweight chopper mitts that I'll wear usually on the access in and then they'll just stay with my bike or stay with the boat. But if I'm just walking in, if it's mild, I might wear, you know, a thin pair of liner gloves. I might not wear gloves at all. It just depends. Uh, A lot of times I might not wear gloves while I'm accessing them. I just have my hands in my vest pocket or something like that. And for a hat, again, just depending on how the uh, the weather is, if it's not too bad, like if it's warm for the rut, I might just wear a ball cap, right? If it's, um, you know, cooler or if it's even cold, I might wear my heavyweight cap that I'm going to wear once I'm on the tree. But what I might do is just lightly drape that hat on the top of my head and not pull it down all the way, you know, close down to my ears. And that allows you to regulate your heat really well. And then, of course, if you start to really exert then you can always take the hat off entirely Uh, but this will allow me to not have to carry in two separate hats one for the access and then one for once you're at the tree same thing with the gloves Um, i'm not a huge fan of carrying additional stuff that uh, i don't need to carry so that's how i would multitask and multi-purpose all of the equipment that i'd be using here nothing that i've talked about so far are things that i would totally ditch once i get to the tree now for the layers that i would pack in This one is probably the biggest in terms of variance for what the weather conditions have in store. If it's going to be super warm, then maybe I don't carry anything in. Maybe I just use that system that I had already and throw on a, you know, a camo pullover uh, or something along those lines. Maybe I just have the, you know, the windproof soft shells for top and bottom. And that's one of those scenarios where I'd probably wear the pants, soft shells in, but just have the hip vents opened up and then to carry in the jacket, put it on once I get to the tree. And if it's going to be colder, then I usually switch to the bibs and parka. Those would be the two pieces that I would carry in for my upper and lower body. And then I would also pack in a hand muff. So three pieces in total. And in my closet right now, I have a lot of different options that I can choose from based on the conditions. And it's more or less totally going to be based on how am I going to feel and how am I going to operate when I'm at the tree? I don't really care anything about access for these layers. I'm just thinking about in the tree functionality. And this is one of those, you know, departures from where I used to to try and uh, save space and pack more efficiently and carry in less weight where I'd get to the tree. And then I would maybe, you know, take off the exterior layer that I had worn on the way in stuff in a, a puffy jacket underneath, and then, put the outer shell back over the top. And that always meant that I had to oversize my shell. So I'd have to have maybe, let's say like an XL, whereas normally I might wear a large. And then that made it hard to to size things appropriately. And it always seemed like it just wasn't quite as comfortable. I didn't have quite the same amount of shoulder mobility. I could a lot of times feel the inside of the, the jacket fabric rubbing against the outer surface of the puffy jacket. And I could you know, feel that noise and hear that noise And even if the deer couldn't hear it, it still was kind of uh, irritating a little bit. And so now I just kind of have gone to, I'm just thinking about comfort and I'm carrying those three pieces of gear. And if those things are heavy, so be it. Once I get to the tree, I'll be glad that I had them. Now for bibs, in my opinion, sound doesn't matter quite as much. So if you had a pair of bibs, like, you know, the Sitka incinerator or something like that, where it's waterproof and windproof, and you had just kind of like a brushed finish and it's not as quiet as like a heavy pile fleece. If you're like hunting in single digits or colder with no wind, that can start to matter a little bit, but you're really not moving a whole lot with your lower body. Um, Even with a saddle, you're not moving the lower body quite a bit. So from a noise perspective, even with a waterproof, windproof, laminate layer, and a lightly brushed surface finish. I mean, I wouldn't wear like super crinkly puffy pants for an exterior layer, but, um, I'd be fine with most any other options in terms of bibs and from an insulation perspective and a weather protection standpoint. Um, those are great option or similar options, right? So some kind of a laminate, some kind of a, a soft finish, and then as much insulation as you think you're going to need. And, from this standpoint too, the, the key thing for me is you got to have at least zippers on the legs that go up to like the crotch level, preferably a few inches higher because any lower than that, like a lot of bibs might have knee high zippers. It's really hard to put those bibs on without taking your boots off. And so having the full length zippers makes a huge difference there. If the zippers you know run the entire length of the, the side of the bibs, that's great. Uh, makes it even easier to put those things on. Now, When it comes to the parka, it's a little bit different. Noise matters a little bit more to me there. And there's nothing more quiet than just a really high loft fleece in the exterior. The downside of course, is that it adds a lot of bulk to the garment itself. I tried quite a bit with a lot of different options that were like the puffy style of jackets, like the First Light Chamberlain. um, Even like Fleet has some really good uh, puffy jackets and, and they work good for middle temperatures. But when it gets super cold, I still don't prefer them as my external layer. I still much prefer the, the parka style. And something like the waterproof, windproof laminate with a brushed finish is going to work just fine for the vast majority of rot scenarios. When we're talking like late season, super cold, and uh, dry, then my opinion starts to change a little bit. But for rot that type of garment is going to be totally good. And I'm thinking more about how does this thing fit my body? How much freedom of movement do I have when I try and draw my bow back in a goofy position? How much freedom of movement do I have when I'm trying to execute a shot? Um, Those are things that matter to me quite a bit. And, you know, how does the, the collar, you know, move with my head when I move my head back and forth? Does it work well with a beanie? Uh, Does it work well with a face mask? That sort of stuff. So it's all kind of based on function and uh, you know, the quieter the better, but I'm not going to necessarily say you have to have something that's totally dead quiet. Uh, for example, I have a Sika fanatic jacket and that thing's great. And it is awesome for really late season, dead calm, you know, single digits, zero teens, uh, where you want to be absolutely as quiet as possible, drawing that bow back and you can move your head left and right and kind of scan. And there's zero noise that your, you know, beard hairs or, or your hats making against the garment but it's definitely not needed in my experience for, you know, temps in the, let's say twenties, thirties, forties. If you have any kind of wind, especially that is enough to to overcome that tiny little bit of fabric noise that you would have otherwise. So got a lot of options there. The other thing that uh, certainly can come into play is inclement weather. If you have rain, sleet, snow, which are all absolutely very possible options Um, then you got to account for that. And that was one of those things where we're looking at the high pile fleece. It didn't do so well with precipitation because it would just fill up the fleece. And, uh, then you have to dry it out at the end of your hunt. Whereas if you have layers that are waterproof, windproof, really the only difference a lot of times between those two types of laminates, the waterproof and the windproof would be that maybe one is, um, you know, fully taped or welded seams and the other one is not. And so, therefore, one is quote-unquote waterproof, one isn't. But from a practical standpoint, they're both going to be pretty waterproof. Um, There are some differences there. Like, for example, the Gore Windstopper is not the same fabric as Gore-Tex. That would be like the stuff they would put in their rainwear. And it's a little bit uh, generally quieter from that standpoint. That's why they put that in the Sika Fanatic, uh, whereas they put, like, the actual Gore-Tex in the incinerator. Um, There's a few other pretty much all of the major clothing brand companies have options for garments that have windproof layers in them and windproof laminates. Sentinelock for example, they have their Fortress series, and I think they have the Hydrotherm as well, which have those waterproof uh, laminates. Now, they also have something that's more similar to the Fanatic in that it's ultra quiet and uh, made for more late season. And the thing about that one is the way that they get their um, quietness from a garment standpoint is they don't have a laminate like, you know, many of the other garments would have. It's heavily insulated and the, the different weaves of the fabric make it highly wind resistant, but it also doesn't have that laminate. And so that makes it even down to like negative eight degrees. When I tested clothes last year, that garment, the divergent as well as the, uh, the fanatic, were neck and neck in terms of having absolutely almost no noise, in those below zero temperatures. Whereas a lot of the other garments were kind of, I would call the middle of the road, the ones that had laminates. Um, usually you'd have that, uh, you know, flag flapping in the wind or that, you know, tarp noise when it got that cold. But if it's teens, if it's twenties, usually it's not going to be any issue whatsoever. So, If you need the weather protection, don't feel shy to go ahead and pick up something that has a laminate, bring that out into the woods. If it's going to be rainy, if it's going to be windy, the deer aren't going to hear that anyway, uh, you know, bring your rain gear and wear that as an exterior layer. Um, that's going to be fine too, especially if you're hunting, you know, late pre-rut and you're, you want to hunt a scrape and you know, it's going to rain. Like it is for me this coming week, I can see in the forecast, it's going to rain, uh, possibly off and on for like three days in conjunction with a cold front hitting you better believe that I want to be sitting over top one of those scrapes once that uh, rain starts to let up. And so I would have no qualms in that scenario, just wearing a legit rain gear as my external layer to keep me dry. Because with those temperatures and any kind of wind, I'm not super worried about the noise aspect, but uh, you got to definitely keep that in mind, especially if it's going to be cold and calm, which again, rare, but it can happen that couple of years ago scenario when we had ultra ultra cold, We were actually in Missouri at the time, so we didn't even get the worst of it, but it was, you know, 40s that dropped down into 30s that dropped down into 20s with winds and precipitation, rain that turned to sleet that turned into snow. And that was the evening that I ended up shooting my buck. But then for everybody else that happened to be down there that next day after the front had passed, it was like 13 degrees and dead calm, uh, with, you know, snow and kind of a, an icy mix laying on the ground. And then shift that further north to, you know, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and it was like below zero, uh, dead calm. And that's one of those scenarios where now now you probably don't want that, uh, waterproof, windproof laminate, um, or the, I guess, lightly brushed fabric as much as you would like in that scenario to have more of a high pile fleece exterior to really cut down on all that extra noise. So maybe that gives you some additional food for thought from a muff standpoint. I mean, obviously muffs are huge. I like uh, that a lot of the clothing company brands have started to think about saddle hunting more in terms of adding pockets and pass throughs like the first like kit length or, uh, you know, fleet has something similar set and lock on some of their garments. I think even like the John Eberhardt signature series suit, they've added the, the pockets higher up and all that's great, but it still, in my opinion, doesn't match the amount of hand warmth that you can get with a muff, a really good muff with good insulation a lot of it, and a laminate built in. There's some muffs that are just garbage, like the I remember the ones we used to wear in, you know, football games back in high school. They were just thin. They were basically just fleece, non-windproof muffs. They work well for, you know, playing a football game, but I definitely wouldn't want to be out in the woods with them. But the new one from First Light, um, the Sika Incinerator muff, that one's Realistically, pretty overpriced, I think, for what it is, but it is a really great muff. One that's similar would be like the MT50 muff from Cabela's, that's again got that windproof, that Gore Tex laminate, a lot of insulation, um, but not quite as expensive. And then basically anything with like, you know, 300, 400, 500 grams of insulation, some kind of a windproof laminate, you're going to be good. And if it has more structure, that tends to be a little bit uh, more desirable from my standpoint. A lot of times if I'd be checking out hand muffs in the store, I would just see how easily I could put a fist in and out of that muff and imagine myself doing that with gloves. Sometimes if they have the little cuff on the outside, it seems like it always hangs up on the gloves and it's hard to get your hands in and out. Uh, so that was one that the incinerator muff from Sika did a pretty good job with. It had good structure. So even if I was wearing middle weight gloves, I could easily slide my hands in and out without too much effort. So all things to consider, especially if you're going out to the store and you're thinking, you know, which one should I get? Keep that in mind. Heavy insulation, but also how's the structure? If I'm saddle hunting, a lot of times I'll have the muff just kind of hanging underneath my bridge. So I don't really care as much about how well it packs. Uh, I just want it to be nice and functional. And then last but not least, uh, some of the extra extremity stuff. So I mentioned gloves. If it gets really cold, then... I have been pretty fond of the Shiver Shield gloves. They're an aerogel-based glove, and I tried some of their other stuff too, and I wasn't as much of a fan of it, but the gloves I've been pretty happy with. They are a little stiff. It's kind of hard to describe. It almost feels kind of like the consistency of cardboard when you first get them out of the package, but then once you put them on and you start to move your hand around a little bit, they loosen up pretty fast. But from a insulation-to-thickness standpoint, it's really hard to beat that material. And so, when you're hanging on to your cold aluminum bow for you know a minute, ninety seconds, that can make a big difference. And if it's a little bit more mild in terms of temperature, I guess uh, a lot of times I'll just wear kind of my earlier season gloves. Might go with like a you know a cut off merino glove, or even just like a, a normal lightweight synthetic glove that I'd wear for you know turkey hunting or early season bow hunting or whatever because. Majority of the time, my hand's probably going to be in the muff with uh, external heat from chemical warmers if needed. So the amount of time that my hand spent outside of the muff is usually going to be pretty minimal. If it's going to be cold enough, I definitely do think it's valuable to have windproofing in your gloves. The shiver sealed ones basically have that built in. Uh, But if you don't, like another option could be, you know, Cabela's makes a glove, or at least they used to make it. Hopefully they still do, but it was a ultra thin glove, but it had Gore-Tex Windstopper in it. And I just cut the index finger and the thumb halfway off on those so that they operated like a triggerless type of design. But if you were taking your hands out of the muff, if you had a you know stiff 25 mile an hour wind and it's you know, 25, 30 degrees, that's cold and that cools your hands off super fast. And just having that little bit of wind protection really goes a long way. Doesn't add any insulation. So your hands are still certainly going to get cold, but you know, for 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, it can really help take the edge off. And then for hats and face masks, balaclavas, that sort of thing, a lot of times I'll just wear, I guess my two all-time favorites. One would be the incinerator GTX hat. I love that hat. It's probably my favorite hunting hat of all time. It's got a brim, not a full length ball cap brim, but probably like half or three quarter length. It's totally waterproof and on the interior it has high pile fleece and then it has some uh, additional insulation in it. Uh, It's very comfortable. You can take the ear flaps and flip them up so you can hear better, or you can pull it back down and give yourself more coverage. I've worn that hat when it's literally been freezing rain and uh, gotten back to the truck and I have icicles hanging off the bill of the hat and my head's still warm and dry. And I can wear it, you know, as a late season hat. I can wear it as a mid season hat. If it's, you know, moderate temperatures, I can walk in with it kind of, you know, sitting on top of my head. And then once I get to the stand, I don't have to put the ear flaps down unless I need them. Uh, and if it gets, I guess, more cold dry than the Fanatic beanie, I have been pretty fond of as well. And that one's just a, it's windproof, but it's super, super high loft uh, fleece. So there's a lot of warmth with that hat overall. The downside is it takes up a lot of bulk. It's a really bulky hat. But uh, again, one other nice thing that they have going on there is that over the ears themselves, that you have a little bit thinner material, so it doesn't cut down on your hearing quite as bad. There are a gazillion options in terms of headwear. The thing I'll make sure to remind people of is that just because something looks like it's warm, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it might be, say, totally windproof, and it might feel great until you get into a 30-mile-an-hour wind, and all of a sudden that really uh, takes a toll on you when you're sitting on there, you know, hour two, three, four on stand. Definitely look for some kind of windproof hang tag or some kind of marketing on the website that says that it's it's windproof. Uh, For rut hunting, that's definitely something I would key in on. I'm not a huge fan of face masks just in terms of the lessened ability to be able to shoot your bow as easily as you would when you're normally just shooting out in the summer. But I do like the uh, fact that they cover up your face, obviously. But if it's cold and windy, they're almost, I would say, borderline necessary uh, to keep your face warm for that amount of time that you're sitting in the tree. And so windproofing is obviously a plus there. It's not maybe a necessity because I think... For me, face masks, if they're at least wind resistant, that can really take the edge off. Integrated hat combo face masks, as well as balaclavas, uh, they all do okay. You know, First Light has a, a balaclava that's called the the Tundra balaclava, I believe. And I don't know if they've updated that or not recently, but the, the old ones that we had were actually pretty nice. You could hear pretty well out of them. They had a, a Sherpa fleece lining that was really warm next to skin the portion that went over your mouth was actually merino wool. So you didn't get that really clammy mouth feel that you get with a lot of face masks, especially the ones that have a windproof laminate that would tend to allow that moisture really build up. So that was a pretty good option. And I definitely don't like to go super heavyweight, typically on face masks or balaclavas, unless I know for sure I'm going to have the opportunity to pull them down off my face when I'm ready to shoot. So the, you know, heavyweight, high pile fleece ones that you would see from like Cabela's or like Nomad or like uh, Sitka. If it's really cold, I'll usually have something like that around my head uh, because I need it. But then I'm 99% of the time going to be pulling that thing down off my face. I'll say hundred percent of the time. Like I just really can't shoot my bow with something like that on. So I'm going to be pulling it out of the way. Whereas if I have a lighter weight face mask, like one that might be integrated into my base layer, or something that's midweight, like the, you know, scent lock one that I'd worn last year. I'll typically still be just fine shooting my bow with that face mask on. I definitely practice with it on. And it does feel different. You have to get used to that feel. I tend to like shooting with an index style hunting release. This is one of the reasons why. If I shoot a hinge release with a face mask and then without, same thing with the thumb button. The anchor just feels so much different. Uh not to mention the fact that I can't get the same, uh, string feel against my, uh, you know, lip or my nose. Whereas with the index style release, I don't really feel that rear rear as much anyway, I'm more looking through the peep alignment and the scope alignment and making sure that my nose is on the the string or the nose button. And it's just easier for me to get that same alignment, that same feel with the index style release. But bottom line, if you're going to wear a face mask, definitely practice with it. Make sure your point of impact is not going to shift. And that goes for the rest of your cold weather gear as well. Make sure that you're able to draw your bow back. Make sure you have good uh, freedom of movement up in your shoulders. Make sure that you have enough string clearance and that you're not changing your point of impact by your string slapping in your sleeve. That was something that I had done a little bit of testing and figured out with my traditional bow. I could use something like a Huntworth uh, heavyweight fleece jacket, which actually is another nice option. I don't think I mentioned to the in the episode to this point yet but, uh, I could shoot that one just fine. But if I stepped up to a fanatic, even though it has the less amount of uh, material over the sleeve, that would change my point of impact by like nine inches at 20 yards, just because I had a little bit of a string clearance issue there. So test it now. So it doesn't become an issue later. I think I've covered just about everything. If you guys have any additional questions, reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook. That'll do it for this week's episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Empire on Instagram and Facebook. Leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman on YouTube and hit the bell icon to be notified of new videos. You can also follow DIY underscore Sportsman on Instagram. And with that, thanks for listening.